Well, good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend to all of you gathered here. If you're in from out of town, it's good to see you. Good to have you visiting us this weekend. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you do so, I want you to consider this question with me. What sets the pace and the priorities for your life? That could be a difficult question to answer. Because probably for most of us, you know, life just happens. We're, we're just trying to keep up. And there are all kinds of books being published today about productivity and how to organize your responsibilities, how to gain focus. I tend to do a better job at reading those books than implementing the system. Uh, but there are all kinds of task manager apps available now. But, but life doesn't really cooperate with our systems. You know, it, it would be nice if it did. But, but the next thing just tends to arrive uninvited and demand that we interact with it. You know, whether that's an unexpected assignment at work or if that's the needs of one of your children or if that's some social media posts that you're now paying attention to, it just, it just floats across the screen. Needs are intrusive. They, they don't wait in line and ask permission before entering your world. The week fills up. Our time gets absorbed. Other things are pushed aside. Plans get canceled. Resources are spent. Life happens. But, but every now and then when we're alone with our thoughts, we remember some of the things that we've been neglecting. You know, and, and a tinge of anxiety can sit in. That creeps into our awareness. What hasn't been addressed? And so we'll make promises. You know, this week I have to blank. Or next year we've got to whatever. Now how do you fill in those blanks? What is a must? What in your world needs to get addressed. What's weighing on you right now? Could be a relational problem, a conversation you know that you need to have, could be a home maintenance project, a financial need that you need to take control of, maybe an area for personal change and growth, new habits that need to be put in place. What seems pressing? Because here's something we need to learn to pay attention to. How urgent that feels, it's related to deeper beliefs and desires that we have. How we interpret life, what we believe needs to happen in order to secure a good future, what we will spend our energy to attain. There are basic priorities and commitments that we live out of. And the reality is, we find some things easy to ignore, you know, we, we just do. We, we can rest easy knowing full, fully well that never got done. It's just another day has gone by and we didn't lift that at all. And that doesn't worry us. And other things will create panic if they don't come together. What are those for you? Because they're, they're not the same for all of us. What, what feels like a speed bump to one person might derail someone else. We don't assign the same weight and value to these things. But to borrow a phrase from our passage this morning, there are certain things that have laid necessity on us. And we interact with them in that way. If you remember the context here, Paul is, is relating with the Corinthians on the subject of rights. And they are a dissatisfied people. They don't want this messed with, right? Certain things feel like a must. Securing their freedom, being able to live and eat in the way that they want without having to be burdened by other people, going about life unhindered, having their power and their status respected. And Paul here, through the Holy Spirit, he wants to help them see that they're freaking out about all the wrong things. And so he models something for them personally. In this chapter, Paul reveals his priorities. 
what gets his attention versus what he can take or leave. And the list of must-haves for Paul is quite short. Paul had this amazing adaptability. He is extremely flexible in some categories and immovable in others. And unlike us, he knew how to tell the difference between those two. The things of livelihood and lifestyle he is willing to lay down. And as, as we'll see next week, even something as, as fundamental to his identity and his upbringing as whether he lives like a Jew or a Gentile. You know, everything I've ever known about how to live in society, sure, I can give that up. It's just not a big deal. But there is something that he cannot not do. And that is preach. Paul was a free man. He felt a deep liberation from the things that we tend to get worked up about. And yet, he was a captive. He was bound to one thing. There was one animating concern. So let's read this together. We're going to back up to verse 15. 1 Corinthians 9, 15. He says... But I've not made use of any of these rights. He's talking about his, his right to receive financial provision in ministry. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, right? This isn't reverse psychology. I'm not trying to collect money from you now. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that will pressure us into its mold. And so we've gathered today to be remade by your word. We, we need this on a weekly basis. We need this on a daily basis. We need new instincts and new reflexes installed in us because we will just default to caring deeply about little things and ignoring large things in life. So Spirit, would you help us not do that this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, humanly speaking, William Tyndale is the reason why we have Bibles available in English today. And in 1531, he had been living in exile from England for seven years. Translating scripture into English was illegal activity. And there was a representative of the king who was sent to to find him and to persuade him to return And after speaking with him, he he wrote about Tyndale that I find him always to be singing one note. And it was this. Will the king approve of a translation of scripture into English? And if so, he would turn himself in and he would agree never to write another book. And if not, he would live forever away from his homeland. That was his one note. Get the Bible in the hands of the people. Paul is always singing one note and it rings out clearly in this passage. And while there's some uniqueness to his experience and to his calling, he is inviting us to see what he sees and to feel what he feels. Charles Spurgeon writes, I mentioned Paul because what he was, we ought every one of us to be. And though we cannot share in his office, not being apostles, though we cannot share in his talents or in his inspiration, 
Yet we ought to be possessed by the same spirit which actuated him. And let me also add that we ought to be possessed by it in the same degree. So what possessed Paul? He says that necessity is laid upon him. And and that word there, it means to lie on or upon, to, to crowd, to press hard, to be urgent, to insist to be in force, to be imposed. There, there is this force that is pressing upon Paul, that's driving him from city to city across the Mediterranean, burdening his heart and busying his sleepless nights. It's the source of incredible joys and profound suffering. It was his constant preoccupation. Where did this sense of necessity come from? I think we can notice four things in our passage. There's the call of the preacher, the urgency of the need, the beauty of the message, and the reward of the servant. So first, there is the call of the preacher. And his main point here, here's the point in this paragraph in this chapter is I'm not looking for you to congratulate me or to compensate me. I can't boast in this. I have to preach. It's not just a job. This is a calling. And we get a portrait of calling from Paul here. Os Guinness in his modern classic, The Call, writes, calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively That everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and service. And this was a a delight to Paul. But he did not treat it as optional. He is not a volunteer. That's what he says in verse 17. If I do this of my own will, in other words, voluntarily, I have a reward or a a wage. If I signed up for this, then I can receive a paycheck. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. A a stewardship, it's it's the household assignment of a servant, of a slave. His responsibilities, his tasks to to manage something that doesn't belong to him. Ellen Pell is our children's ministry coordinator. And on Sunday mornings, sometimes I'll ask her daughters, Annette and Naomi, if they're up to serve that morning. And and they'll say, yes, we've been voluntold. You know, if, if, if your mom makes the schedule, you don't really have... Another option. And that's how Paul sounds here. And he began chapter 9 by asking, Am I not free? And yet here he says, He is not free not to preach. Why is he making this point? Well, if you remember, the Corinthians didn't like the fact that Paul refused to take money from them. They liked the impressive speakers for hire, they, they appreciated how important it made them feel to be able to bring someone in, to fund their ministry, to to be able to hold influence over them, to keep them in their back pocket. And Paul's saying, do you think this is some job that I applied for? Like I'm a speaker in search of an honorarium? Paul didn't want this job. His preferences were overridden. He had to remind the Galatians of this as well. In Galatians 1.13, he says, For you've heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, right? He, he, he was being known. He had a reputation. People were looking up to him. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul did not apply for the role of apostle. He didn't sit down for an interview. He didn't bring his marketing platform to a publisher to convince them that he could gain an audience. From a human vantage point, there is no reason for Paul to leave Judaism behind. He was deeply invested in it. This was his life. He he was advancing in it. Building up a resume. It was comfortable. It was everything he had known from growing up. He had sincere beliefs. He was zealous for them. They made life feel meaningful. And yet, he was wrong. And when a man back from the dead appeared to him, he realized how wrong he was. And Paul's making clear that his calling was not his idea. His message wasn't something that he came up with. He didn't like this message. But it was compellingly true to him. It was revealed to him. And in fact, you could translate that. It was revealed in him. Something came alive. Something went off inside of him when he encountered Christ. And his calling to preach the gospel was so clear that he got to work. He says, I didn't consult with anyone. Literally, I I didn't consult with flesh and blood. That's what the word he uses there means. He didn't need flesh and blood confirmation. He wasn't looking for a human stamp of approval. He wasn't waiting for somebody to affirm that what he was doing was worthwhile. He didn't need to sign on for a sponsorship deal. He was arrested by Jesus. In Philippians 3, he says that Christ Jesus has laid hold of him. He has made him his He has exercised ownership over his life. What else can he do? He can no longer kick against the goats. And so he cannot boast in preaching. God did this. God put his hands on him. God laid necessity on him. And now preaching is like breathing. No one congratulates you for exhaling. (sighs) Great job, buddy. You know, it just doesn't happen. You know, sometimes it feels like the the super rich, they just get paid to breathe. Like, you guys just make money by existing somehow. Uh, But for for most of us, we, we breathe out of necessity. We can't hold it in. And the prophet Jeremiah described the word of God as a fire shut up in his bones. He couldn't hold it in. He couldn't help but speak. And that's how Paul sounds here. There there are gospel words burning inside of him. And, And this is instructive for those who are considering ministry. What it means to have a call to preach. And I pray that includes people in here. It's often said, if you can do anything else but pastoral ministry, then do that. But if you can't do anything else, then you might be called. Now, that's probably overstated a little bit. But there's a truth in that. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that those who can do and those who can't preach. You know, I had one of the youth ask me on Wednesday night, wait, this is your job? I said, I know. I couldn't get hired to do anything else. <laughs> but, but, but there needs to be this, this compelling. Because whatever other outward incentives there are, they just wear thin quickly. They will not endure. And, and you need to know this about the character of ministry, even if you never intend to be a pastor. You know, what, what kind of people are you following? What kind of church do you want to be a part of? Does it have this flavor to it? Now, years ago, John Piper wrote a book titled Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. 
And it was a plea for, for pastors not to treat their ministries like they were just running a business. That's not to deny that the church has an organizational structure that requires leadership and that we can gain insights from the corporate world. But a pastor is not a CEO or a creative with a story brand. It's, it's not a profession where you just have to hone the right technique. And how do you professionally pray and intercede for the kingdom of God? How do you professionally weep with the broken? How do you professionally have courage to endure difficulty? These are produced only by the Spirit of God, only in someone who labors under a calling of God, who has necessity laid upon him. And Paul says, I'd rather die than treat this like I'm just running some apostolic business. Like I'm just any other voice. Like this is just some TED talk. And preachers might show up in a, in a podcast or on some Instagram video, but they're not just like any other marketing platform or influencer in this world. The answer to God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Robin Dorr and Jeremy Walker write, the minister is not a free agent or loose cannon. It is not his own will or whim that governs him. It is not even the will or whim of a particular church that directs him. It is God's gospel that he preaches and he is free to preach no other. It is the will and purpose of almighty God that guides his life and dominates his awareness of who he is and what he must do. He labors under a present sense, often a weighty sense of his stewardship from God. And he serves the church in accordance with that stewardship, discharging his responsibilities to the body of Christ as one standing before God himself. Woe to me and the other leaders here if we do not preach the gospel. It's the call of the preacher, and second, there is the urgency of the need. And Paul's phrase, preach the gospel, it, it translates just one word in Greek, which, which, which means to proclaim good news, urgently needed news. You know, in, in the information age, it's, it's just so easy to take for granted the, the speed at which news travels. Everything is immediate. And so any sense of, of what represents priority information is lost. But it hasn't always been this way. For the first 35 years of his life, Samuel Morse was a painter and he spent his time perfecting that craft. He lived in New Haven, Connecticut with his wife and two young sons and he had a third child on the way. And in 1825, he received the message that the Marquis de Lafayette, who was a, a hero from the Revolutionary War, would be visiting New York. And, and the city wanted to pay Morse to paint his portrait if he could leave right away. So a week, a week later, he was preparing for the portrait and, and gathering his, his plan for that. And a courier showed up at the door and handed him a letter that read, your dear wife is convalescent. So, so Morse rode for six days straight. And when he arrived, he realized that his wife had already died and had been buried. And she had died before the courier had ever made it to him. Samuel Morse spent the final 45 years of his life seeking to ensure that nobody would have to experience what he went through. And he invented the telegraph and came up with Morse code. And certain messages are urgent. We lose that in a day of instant updates. But what is the most urgent news? 
What does the world desperately need to hear? Consider it another way. What does humanity need? That's what Pastor Keith was praying about a moment ago. And and there are many ways that we can help people, that we can do good in this world. We ought to be seeking to relieve suffering and and to fix broken systems wherever we can. We ought to be engaged in that work. But what is our greatest need? Is it better education? Moral and social reform? Structural equality? Recovery and healing from traumatic experiences? All of those are significant needs. But Paul described his life orientation in this way. And we'll consider these verses more next week. But look at verse 19. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Verse 22, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. People need to be one. Right now they are captive to something else. Some other idea system or approach to life controls them. They love something else and it is destroying them. People need to be saved. They're wandering and lost. They are stepping into the intersection of eternity, blind to what awaits them. This sounds unusual today, doesn't it? We, we live in a culture that just wants to celebrate everyone's individual approach to life and spirituality, whatever path they choose to take, whatever is meaningful to them. What if they don't feel like they need something else? Listen, the Apostle Paul was very comfortable in his spirituality before he was wrecked by Jesus Christ. People's self-understanding often does not reflect their true spiritual reality. We are not reliable self-evaluators. You know, there's actually been research that has shown this. David Dunning and Justin Kruger have published this article in a psychology journal. It's titled, Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Awareness. Here's the abstract. They they write, people tend to hold overly favorable views of their abilities in many social and intellectual domains. The authors suggest that this overestimation occurs in part because people who are unskilled in these domains suffer a dual burden. Not only do these people reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. This is actually written in a science journal. Across four studies, the authors found that participants scoring in the 12th percentile on tests of humor, grammar, and logic grossly overestimated their test performance and ability. In other words, people who aren't funny tend to think they're funnier than the average person because they they don't know what makes something funny. Science explains dad jokes. That's the problem here. This has been called the the Dunning-Kruger effect. When you're incompetent, you're too incompetent to know that you're incompetent. This is the human condition. We always think we are better off than we are. And what is sobering is how out of touch we can be with matters of eternal significance. Unaware that we need to be reconciled to a holy God. Oblivious to our moral bankruptcy. Uninformed that a perfect savior has done everything necessary in order to bring us all the way home. People don't know this. They need to be told. 
1 Corinthians 9 has behind it Romans 10, 14 ringing. Paul writes, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they? They won't. They will not arrive at this on their own. No matter how deeply they look inside of themselves, this is not discoverable. This is a problem that humanity cannot solve on its own. We will always overestimate how okay we are and therefore how okay God must be with us. And Paul knows, I've been given the answer that fixes them. How can you sit on good news? A couple years ago, Penn Gillette, who's part of the magic duo Penn and Teller, he's an atheist, and he posted a video on, on YouTube, and he just was in tears, having been deeply affected by somebody who shared the gospel with him. And he said in that video that, that even as an atheist, he just doesn't understand Christians who don't evangelize. He said this, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? Or to believe that everlasting punishment is coming on unbelievers and not warn them? How much do you have to hate somebody? Paul was driven by love A debt of love he was compelled to discharge. He said earlier in Romans 1, 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, right? Every ethnic and social class. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm under obligation. That translates a phrase that means I am in debt. I am a debtor. And I want to discharge this debt. I've been entrusted with a stewardship. God has deposited into my account spiritual wealth available to all humanity. And he said, give it out. It's not yours to keep. Distribute it indiscriminately. This isn't true just for Paul. We have the most precious message in our possession. That full pardon is available. That there is life-giving hope that Jesus receives the weary and heavy laden. Woe to us if we do not witness to this. It's just so easy for, for these to just be words that don't hold any weight, for this just to be noise, for other things to feel urgent. This, this is so distant from day-to-day life and our awareness is just crowded out by the next small thing demanding our attention. Pray that you would feel these realities. I remember at a men's retreat, Scott Snyder, who has been sent with his family and a few other families to serve in Thailand as a missionary. And, and he was sharing with the men some of the work that he would be doing months before his family was about to pack up and move across the globe. And he got about one sentence in. And broke down in tears. Because he was thinking about the Thai people that God was sending him to. He was thinking about the confusion and the blindness and the idolatry that they are lost in. He was thinking about the eternity that was hanging in the balance. And he asked them, when was the last time you shed tears? 
for the lost. And I thought, I don't do that. But you know, that, that doesn't have to remain. Jeremiah said, oh, that my head may be like waters, that I might not run out of tears for the waywardness of God's people. My mom was actually praying that in the prayer meeting this morning, that God would, would give us a burden of prayer that's reflected in weeping for the broken, weeping for the lost, engaging with a sense of necessity, what God wants to do in sending us in his mission in this world. Pray that necessity would press upon us. As the urgency of the need, there is the beauty of the message. This week I was having lunch with Dan McConnell and he was sharing with me stories from being involved with Young Life for over 40 years and telling me about you know, what it was like to load up a bus of teenagers and travel like 18 hours across the country and, and, and take them to places to experience parts of creation that they had never seen before. You know, for people from New Orleans, things like mountains that are h- taller than Monkey Hill. You know, and just the wonder of that that they were able to experience together and then late night conversations in cabins about you know, what it means to follow Jesus and what difference that could make in their lives. And I, I told them, I, I can tell you love this. Now all you have to do is, is press play and one story follows after another. He, he loved the effect that this would have on these students' lives. And why does Paul speak no matter what? He loves this message. And he loves what it accomplishes in people. He loves to see the ways that it frees them. Look at what he says in verse 18. What then is my reward that in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge? He's got a strategy here. He wants them to take notice of something. It would not be wrong for him to share a message with them and then pass along the offering plate. That's within his rights. But but he wanted them to notice something in particular about this message. He wanted them to experience something about this, that it's free to a people that were caught up in competition and patronage and, and, and what their money could purchase and what their social standing could bring about in their life and, 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 and how they compare to those around them. He got to proclaim a free gospel. And he's telling them, I can't be bought and your salvation cannot be bought either. He chose to be a walking parable of the gospel story itself. A free apostle presenting a free gospel, setting people free. Setting them free from themselves and from their sense of entitlements and the game of rights. And he's telling the Corinthians, you needed this message. And you needed the, the particular packaging that it came in when it arrived at Corinth. You needed an unpaid, uncontrolled preacher to come and proclaim to you something that had the power to liberate you. You needed somebody who wasn't a slave to your approval, who was a slave to someone else, who just wasn't impressed with your natural power and social standing. You needed somebody who was a captive to the truth, who felt the necessity of the word of God and was not a captive to your acceptance. And you needed to hear about riches that you could never earn. You needed to hear about status and standing that isn't based in your accomplishments. You needed a word that would humble you 
and make you desperate and dependent on what God and God alone can produce. He's showing them that their, their whole economy is bankrupt, that everything they've been fighting for, the rights they think they earn and deserve, it's already free. Full payment has already been made. All it requires is for you to recognize you've got nothing to bring. Your hands are empty. When it comes to the righteousness of God and the acceptance that you crave and the approval that you're after, you can never achieve that. But it's done, 100%, already done for you. You lay hold of it by faith. Paul loved that he got to bring that word to these Corinthians. And so he says, that's why I'm going to speak, no matter what. Stephen Um writes, what kind of gospel would we need to hear in order to give up our sense of entitlement? This is what we would need to hear. We can stop trying to achieve, purchase, and deserve everything we've been after. Here, take it. It's free. That sense of security we've been trying to achieve. The one that made us buy into the special life narrative. Take it. It's free. Now, whatever it is in those moments of anxiety, when you feel, unless this comes together, then security isn't available to you. A sense of having a good future will not arrive. That shortness of breath that you feel, it's already here. It's already been accomplished. It's free. That love and affection that we've been trying to buy with our carefully chosen words, with sheer romantic willpower, take it. It's free. That respect and dignity that we so desperately desired that it drove us through graduate school and had us work 70 hours a week, take it. It's free. These are outlandish claims. But they are the outlandish claims of the free of charge gospel that we encounter in the scriptures. The jig is up. The game is over. Everything you've been trying to purchase is available for free. And so Paul felt free from everything except from the sense of need to bring this news to people desperately in need of hearing it. And finally, there is the reward of the servant. Ronald, you can come back up, man. And Paul asks in this passage here, and almost feels like a rhetorical question. He asks, well, what then is my reward? I mean, we might wonder, does his answer mean that there's no reward? It hasn't come from the Corinthians. There's not a particular wage that he is looking to receive here. Does, does he mean by that that my only reward is the work itself? The sense, the sense of privilege and the sense of joy that comes as you serve people, right? That, that would have been part of the reward. That really does exist. There's joy in, in serving. But that's not the only way that he sounds in 1 Corinthians. That's not the only kind of reward that he's looking to. You might remember back in chapter 3, in verse 14, he wrote, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. It will come. Not always in the present, not always change in the current circumstances and conditions of life. Those things don't always come together in a, in a clean way, but he will receive the reward. It will not go unnoticed. The one that he answers to, the one that he serves, has attended to every time. Paul said, I am willing to be a slave of all. 
that I might win some. You know, Jesus said, what profit is it if someone would gain the whole world and lose his soul? Paul had a sense, what, what profit is it to me if I, if I gain anything in this, in this world and, and lose one soul that I'm seeking to save? What, what profit is there to me? He's looking for a reward that is beyond anything in this life and in this world that it could produce. And so he is free to speak and that he is not free not to preach this news. You might be familiar with the book The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. George Whitfield said about that book that it smells of the prison. And it was written while Bunyan spent 12 years in prison. And he, and he was there for preaching. He had, he had a blind daughter named Mary who would come and visit him. And whenever she would leave, he, he said it was like the tearing of his flesh from his bones. And all he needed to do to be able to walk away from his jail cell would be to agree to stop preaching. Because he, what he was doing was illegal. He was preaching without a license, without the, the control and the approval of a, of a state that was not following the truth. It's a little bit like pastors in China experience where the Communist Party will allow them to hold service as long as we approve of what you say before you say it and we, we can control your gathering. We can shut it down whenever we want. And Bunyan replied when he was offered his freedom, if only he would stop preaching. I'd rather be in prison until moss grew on my eyebrows. This is what he believed. Necessity was laid upon him. He said, whatever good thing you do for him, if done according to the word, is laid up for you as treasure in chests and coffers to be brought out, to be rewarded before men and angels to your eternal comfort. Comfort is coming. Reward is coming. A good future is on its way. Other things that feel urgent, that crowd out, that sense of perspective. Bunyan and Paul and may we be ready to dispense with. But would it be that what God deems necessary, what he says has value, what he declares to wield influence, not only in this world and the world to come, would that not recede into the periphery of life? Drowned out into the, in the noise and the pace and the busyness of what feels so demanding, what's going to be gone and we're going to forget about it next week. But right now it feels like everything and we will rush past what's eternally weighty and significant in order to gain what we think will bring us peace of mind in a matter of seconds will disappear. I'm praying for a sense of necessity. I'm praying for something of the pressure and the animation that the Apostle Paul reflects here that we might not have his calling, we might not have his role. But I agree with Spurgeon. What actuated him, God intends to activate us. And to the same agree, the Spirit of God is with us. Let's stand together and pray. Jesus, we remember the words that you gave to Martha that she was anxious about many things 
but one thing is necessary. But wherever in our souls and in the patterns of our life, we need to hear that. Lord, however that one thing to us does not hold weight and burden and the anxiety of many things has crowded it out. God, help us to identify that. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for how strange it sounds in our ears. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 18. These are strange words in our day. This isn't what is flooding the news updates of life. This isn't often what feels urgent to us. That's why we need to be helped. God, we, we start by just admitting that. We, 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 we recognize so often the distance or between what animates us, puts us in a panic, causes conflict and, f- and fighting with the people around us, Lord, such small secondary concerns. God, would there be a sense of demand and urgency about what you have said is valuable? There is a mission that we are sent on. There is a debt that we have to pay in the world around us. God, would there be a sense of restlessness with that? Would there be a burden of prayer and tears? God, will we see the the true condition of those around us, Lord, beyond just the the outward self-report? God, help us to feel reality as it actually is. God, help us to live in the freeness and in the captivity of your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name.